Hi, Trinidad and Tobago and the world. And welcome to another edition of Strictly Legal with me, your host, Rondell Donoa. And I'm excited once again to be on WESN Content Capital, where we bring you lots, lots, lots of personalities, information about the law and you. Of course, you see me wearing my, my purple tie because we are celebrating International Women's Month. And of course, as you know, on the 8th of March, the world celebrated International Women's Day with the theme, Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. And Trinidad and Tobago was no exception. And on this episode of Strictly Legal, we will be highlighting, or I will be highlighting an outstanding female in the legal fraternity, uh, female in leadership in Trinidad and Tobago. And I'm excited to have joined me, virtually, of course, a legal luminary, a family law expert, a woman and child, woman and child's rights activist, and advocate for equality of treatment of persons in Trinidad and Tobago, Mrs. Lynette Siberan Sweet. But before we start, I would just like to just give a little, little synopsis. Mrs. Sweet has loads of experience, years of, she's 43 years experience as a litigator. She has her own firm, Lynette Siberan and Company, and she has been instrumental in contributing towards critical pieces of legislation relevant to sexual offenses, domestic violence, sexual harassment, and many, many other areas of the law. And Mrs. Siberan Sweet was also a former chairman of the Equal Opportunities Commission, as well as she serves as member and legal advisor on many, many boards and institutions, that statutory boards and institutions. Mrs. Siberan Sweet, good morning. My pleasure to be here, Rondell, on the occasion of International Women's uh, well, let us call it week, week for 2021. And we are so excited to have you with us. And we appreciate you consenting to be here because many, many persons look up to you, especially myself, practicing in the, in the legal fraternity and through family law and the courts. So thank you. Mrs. Sweet, we have a lot, lot to get through. Now, as, as you know, the, the theme this year was women in leadership. And of course, as a, as a female leader, do you think that women have been given an equal opportunity and, sorry, rather recognition and respect um, as influential leaders in Trinidad and Tobago? I would say so. I would say that women have had their fair share of roles in leadership in Trinidad and Tobago at the level not only of the parliament, but at the level of the public sector and the private sector as well. We, we still have not achieved the kinds of international goals that have been set, for example. We still haven't uh, achieved. We certainly know we are near 50%, yes. which is the goal. Uh, but, you know, the intermediate target of 30%, we still have not. area in which we have done quite well is in the area of public sector leadership because we are at about 60% of women in leadership in the public sector. And there's, there's a lot to be done, but I would say that Trinidad, women in Trinidad do have a good voice in leadership. In leadership, of course. And <clears throat> you have a quite impressive and expansive resume, especially in the field of law. Now, how have you been able to succeed in a profession that is deemed as male-dominant and supposedly sexist in the legal fraternity? It may have been more so than now, <clears throat> because one was the profession. 
expressions are after the 1977. It was less so. And I would say that uh, confidence, confidence and preparedness would have been major ingredients in, if you want to call it, um, my success. I guess I would always have been known as an outspoken and opinionated um, person from, from childhood. And so I think that this just carried over, shall we say, perhaps as a personality trait. And um, I remember in high school, I was uh, in debating and, you know, I, I also came from a, a family background, shall I say, with a social conscience, both my, um, my parents were involved in, in leadership and in giving in their communities. And I followed from this example. Of course, leadership is no exception or, or, or no stranger to you, especially in, in the, the local courts. many years and I would say that from in or about the year 2004 I have been practicing exclusively as a family law practitioner and um, I would have launched my, my own law firm as early as 1992. Uh, prior to that I was in civil law chambers led by the former Chief Justice Michael B. Lamberstein and um, um, operating in uh, a family of, of legal luminaries I would say from whom I learned a lot. Uh, but from early on, I would say that I would have established uh, myself in the field of family law. And I, I recall from very early in my career, in the very early 80s, engaging in what then would have been a somewhat controversial exercise of public education in the law. And I recall that TTT in an earlier incarnation had. Um, a talk show at 6.30 in the afternoon. Um, it was, uh, it was um, hosted by Tony Dial Issues and Ideas. And that was my earliest opportunity, I think, in, the, in this sort of media, um, in, uh, engaging in public education. And I would say that I launched my, as it were, my public career in bringing to the attention of the nation mm -hmm. some of the innovations um, and improvements that have been uh, brought. Yes. It came into force in the very early 70s, which was not uh, very well known to the population. Prior to that, um, there were very restrictive grounds of divorce, and uh, the question of consensual divorce was not known to the law. And the, the grounds as well were discriminatory between men and women. Mm -hmm. And also, the court did not as yet have the power to actually change property rights as they existed on paper um, for the purpose of making awards on divorce. So I was instrumental, I think, let, let me just say, I think. I'm sure you will. <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. So we would, we would take a break. I think we're having some internet problems. So we will take a break. And we'll be right back on WESN. You are watching Strictly Legal. And we're back. And we 
we've we've sorted out the, the connectivity. So therefore, thank you very much for, for being with us, uh, Mrs. Tiburon Sweet. And um, just to continue the conversation. Now, you have been highly instrumental in bringing about passages of legislations far back as the Sexual Offences Act of 1986 and many other pieces, the Domestic Violence Act of 1986 and its amendment in 1991. More particularly, the Domestic Violence Amendment Act of 2020. Now, how practical do you think that these amendments will protect the most vulnerable in society? I think that we have made some very significant improvements in the domestic violence regime with the amendments that came in in July of last year. First of all, the category of applicants um, has been in, increased to include uh, persons in dating relationships. There is a whole new suite of protections for children. The definition of uh, domestic violence has been broadened uh, in terms of what is um, what is considered uh, emotional and psychological abuse, a lot of controlling behavior, the new frontier of violence, which is you know cyber um, cyber bullying, that sort of thing. So all of that has been accomplished, as well as uh, there has been the creation of uh, an ability on the part of the police to yes. obtain an emergency protection order on the on the spot by calling um, a, a magistrate, uh, a judge, um, so that you now have the possibility of the emergency protection order. We also have now introduced some now trying to operationalize where uh, between the police and the court, an assessment can be made as to how serious the threat is to women. Yeah. And this is to head off the ever-increasing incidence of women being killed at the hands of their intimate partners that you know is um, horrifying the nation on a day-to-day -day basis. So um, the police and the courts and the attorneys are all trying to pull together to improve the mechanisms for the protection of women. And has but it been we always have to re we remember we always have to remember that we are our brothers and sisters keepers and it is incumbent upon persons who observe uh, domestic violence to make sure that they put a hand to, to lend a hand for the protection of, of vulnerable family members. And do you think that this new piece of amendment uh, is working or, or should work in the future? Well, it's still, it's still in its, its stages of infancy because the legislation was passed in July of last year, and a significant amount of training is going on both within the judiciary and among the attorneys as to the, the whole operation of the mechanism. The police have introduced a gender-based violence unit, and they are far, I think, more alert to their duties and responsibilities to respond and to respond appropriately in, in a situation, in the situation of domestic violence. One can never have too many shelters and support services. Yes. And that is always a question of resources. But I think that we are on the up and up in terms of improving our, our responses. The, um, as, you, as I, there are yes. units in all of the major police centers, the police themselves are being trained. And I think that even though you still have complaints about the, the, readiness, the readiness response of the police and the, and the, the responsiveness of the, of the courts, I think that there is a lot of um, public awareness 
and general societal awareness about the evil of intimate partner violence and the society is really having a wave, another wave of grappling with this, with this problem. Now, so we do have a very good model yes. of legislation uh, in Trinidad and Tobago, the Domestic Violence Act introduced in 1999, improved it in 1991, improved in 1999, and now again in 2020. But I think that we, we have to now take a step back and look to the question of prevention, the question of what support is given to vulnerable families, yes. whether by virtue of issues of poverty, whether by issues of very young mothers, uh, and, and also the question of the social safety net for the provision uh, for, for support for very young families. So children from the very youngest age get all of the the, the emotional support yeah. that they need, the, the economic support, the physical support that they need so that they become healthy, um, contributing members of society. We get away from the stereotypes in socialization where men are led to think that they have a certain rule, girl children are, are, are led to think that they have an opposite rule. And then it results in very uh, unhealthy, dysfunctional mm. relationships. Agreed. And of course, we see the end result of it at the end of the day where we have these unfortunate um, femicides taking place on a weekly basis. So distressing to the nation, so distressing to those left behind. Yes. You see, so I think that beyond the question of the excellent legislative models, mobilizing the police, mobilizing civil society in terms of shelters, in terms of NGOs, we have a lot of that. We, we still do not seem to have hit upon the exact formula for creating a regime where women can exit abusive relationships mm. safely, where they will then be able to rely on employment, job training, safe housing for themselves and their children. And this is what was highlighted in a 2017 IDB study on women's health, yeah. that notwithstanding all that we have done, we still have these major gaps. Yes. So there is a role, for example, for state agencies such as the Housing Development Authority to prioritize the needs of single women, especially young women with children who are in women-led households where they are in need of secure shelter for themselves and, and their children. You see, so job training, job opportunities, secure housing, and to permit women to, to exit uh, abusive relationships safely. Because that is when you will observe uh, women at, at the greatest danger of extreme violence from their intimate partners. But of course, they have to be and, willing, but of course, they have to be willing to want to exit this, this, this um, relationship. One, this is it. Well, one of the, we, we have recently run a series of webinars within the legal profession yes. and in which the, both the judiciary and the police have participated. And what the psychologists have cautioned us is that you have to come at providing support for victims of domestic violence from a non-judgmental mm -hmm. position. And you have to be prepared on every occasion that the person comes forward for help to give your assistance afresh. Yes. You cannot take the position that, well, we advise you to exit the relationship <clears throat> on the last occasion and you did not. 
so we're not going to help you now. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the psychosocial dimensions of intimate partner violence and the long-term effects on the psyche of the, of the survivor have to be more deeply understood. And also the difficulty of finding the necessary alternatives, as I said, critical is housing in, 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 in financial support so that a, a woman may not easily be able to exit a relationship where she is unsure mm -hmm. as to where she's going to live yes. and how her children are going to be supported and how her safety is going to be provided. So frequently women feel that the only option that they have is to remain or to return. Yes. And so certainly um, the police have been engaging in training and attorneys have been training themselves to understand that they must bring a level of non-judgmental support to victims, especially um, long-term chronic right. victims of intimate partner violence, and to and to train them for perhaps for uh, preparing for for as it were exit strategies. Yeah. Exit strategies. You don't want to be cornered. You don't want to be doing things to to precipitate. Um, and and infl uh, inflame a situation, a situation and, yes. you know, you may have to deal with drug abuse, you may have to deal with alcoholism, you know, you may have to deal with mental illness in your partner. So you have to train yourself to understand the situation that you're in and to plan for your exit strategy. Now, Mrs. Sibiran Sweet, I want to touch on, because this, this conversation is, is, is hours long, particularly in light of so many <laughs> challenges. Now, what I want to discuss or touch on is, is your role or your stint as Equal Opportunities, as chairman of the Equal Opportunities Commission. Uh, it was between 2012 to 2020. 2014. 2014 and Now, do you think that the Equal Opportunity Commission was, had the correct legislative framework to really... Um, to really decide or, or, or operate um, in terms of equal opportunity for everyone in Trinidad and Tobago? The, the Equal Opportunity Act had a very good framework for the recognition of discrimination on a number of uh, status grounds. It could deal with sex, it could deal with religion, it could deal uh, uh, with uh, geographic origin, it could deal with disability, and so a broad spectrum of um, marital status. It could deal with a broad spectrum of the various status grounds upon which you could apply for relief from discrimination. But there was one major flaw in the legislation, which from the inception of my term and my board, we have been agitating across various attorneys general for a change. And that is with the definition of sex. That's because sense. the definition of sex discrimination specifically excluded the LGBTQ community from being able to access relief yes. uh, for sex discrimination. And this is reflected as well in the domestic violence legislation. Most of the categories of persons, except with respect to dating relationships, most of the categories of relationships covered by the uh, domestic violence legislation uh, require the applicant and the respondent to be of a different sex. Yeah. So 
we we definitely have not made the kind of advance that we need there to bring ourselves in line with our obligations and our international treaties in line with best, best practices in human rights. And I dare say that in Trinidad and Tobago, we do not have a society which wishes to discriminate against persons on the basis of their sexual orientation. And, and this is, and this is study, where... Study after study has shown this. Mm -hmm. Study after study has shown this, that when you ask the question in a general population, do you feel that a person should be denied services, should be denied employment, or should be discriminated against on the basis of their of their uh, sexual orientation? The answer is no. Yeah. Clear. In excess of 70% of the population mm -hmm. gives that answer. But we have not found politicians at any party level that are, that are sufficiently courageous to take this world by the own. But then, but then, the but then, what about the sexual harassment legislation? Because I know you are now being instrumental, and I know the Attorney General would have announced that cabinet is designed to bring this before Parliament. Does the sexual yes. um, harassment or the proposed sexual harassment legislation provide for protection of these communities? Certainly, the Attorney General, we have been working the Equal Opportunity Commission and other actors in civil society, the Coalition Against Domestic Violence, the Ministry of Labor, many other actors have been working um, or throughout 2020 on generating a, a sexual harassment bill that yes. would provide protection both in the area of, of labor and in the area of discrimination law for, to, to make it perfectly mm. clear to make it perfectly clear that sexual harassment is a category of sexual discrimination. Mm -hmm. Indeed, the, the Equal Opportunity Commission at this time has before the, the Court of Appeal uh, a decision of the Equal Opportunity Tribunal, which, which decided uh, to the contrary, which decided in our view and uh, in the view of all of the legal precedents across the Commonwealth that sexual harassment is not a category of sex discrimination for the purpose of the Equal Opportunity Commission receiving complaints. Yeah. So that was clearly wrong. That interpretation of the, the term sex discrimination to exclude sexual harassment was clearly wrong. It was appealed and it is before the Court of Appeal now, the case has been argued and it is a waiting decision so that we are confident that sexual harassment will be declared to be a category of sex discrimination, as is established, as I said, across the Commonwealth in the case law, straight up to the House of Lords, the Supreme Court in the United Kingdom, whose, whose judgments have highly persuasive authority, Trinidad and Tobago being a common law country and, and a Commonwealth uh, country. So that we are not waiting yes. for the legislation. Yes. Uh, to declare that the legislation would simply codify what is already clearly the law. And if you look at the precedents coming out of the industrial court, sexual harassment has clearly been found to be behavior which is contrary to good industrial relations practice and which has caused um, relief to be granted against companies who right. permit uh, management systems which permit sexual harassment in the workplace and do not provide remedies for people who are affected. Mr. So and Sweet, it's, it's clear in the case law, both in the labor regime and the international discri uh, discrimination and human rights regime. Yes. So we are merely waiting on a pronouncement from the Court of Appeal.
And Mrs. Sibiran Sweet, I'm afraid our time is up in this segment. However, I believe that we need to continue this conversation because there's many things that we don't know or persons within the, um, the public doesn't know what is being done in the background and the work that the legal luminaries are doing. So thank you so much uh, for giving of your time and your experience and expertise. And we will Absolutely. be seeing you again. You can have me back whenever. With your consent. Um, you are mutually available, my dear. Thank you very much. So you have been watching WESN. You have been watching Strictly Legal. I will see you next week for another episode. Thank you and goodbye.